Welcome to Speaking Candidly with Candace. Today we'll be talking about alcohol addiction and recovery. My guest today is Teresa Yoon, who is celebrating five and a half years of recovery from alcohol. She also ran a recovery group for the past two years. Welcome, Teresa, to the podcast. First of all, let me say congratulations on your sobriety. Thank you. It's actually going to be six years next month. Excellent. Do you remember when you took your first drink and how old you were? Well, I grew up Catholic, so technically having wine every Sunday was the first time when I was seven. But I didn't, um, I didn't develop a problem until I was in my 20s. The first time I actually got drunk was, I was probably 19 or 20. Um, it was a very, very light drink and it just plastered me. And I decided that I didn't like that feeling. So it wasn't until about five years later um, when I had a lot of stress because my husband at the time was cheating on me and bills weren't getting paid and all the things. Um, I started drinking a bottle of wine every night and then that just escalated. So it was a pro progress and a process of how it started. So did you realize that you were becoming addicted or using alcohol as a crutch? I did. Um, and by the time I realized it, it was too late, but it wasn't too long after I started that habit that I realized it. It's like within six months, I was like, wow, I'm doing this every day. Did your friends or family or coworkers notice that you had a, a problem? My husband at the time did. Um, my daughter was too young to remember. My parents, uh, they knew I had a drinking problem, but only intermittently because they think I quit. They, and, you know, go for a long period of time not realizing that I was still drinking. So um, over the course of my entire quote unquote drinking career, it was about 16 years. Um, there were several people who knew that I had a drinking problem because I admitted it. I kind of bragged about it actually, um, you know, cause I wasn't a lightweight. I could out drink anybody, but, um, the important people like my parents in the end didn't know until, until I was ready to quit permanently. So how did you let them know you were ready to quit? The day that I surrendered to my parents. Um, I had gotten up that morning. I had drank what was left of my vodka and I had realized that my tax return was coming paper mail instead of a uh, direct deposit. And I freaked because I, I was broke. I had no money, not even to buy a $5 pint of vodka. So I drank what I, what I had left and I went to my daughter, like having a panic attack and she's like mom you gotta go tell grandma and papa and because I was drinking that morning that gave me the the guts to go down there if I hadn't been I probably would still be where I am or where I was at the time um so the liquid courage gave me courage to go tell my mom and dad um and my husband at the time didn't believe that I was gonna quit because he had heard it so many times before. But when he knew my parents knew, because they hadn't known for a very long time, 
he knew that I was serious this time. So what was that process like? And I, again, I should applaud you for the courage to tell your parents and to start Thank you. the process of getting help. So what was that like? What was the conversation like with your parents? Do you recall? I went down there. Haley, my daughter, took my mom aside just because my mom has always been very self-centered and not really take anything seriously unless it had to do with her. So she distracted her while I went to my dad and I just started crying and he didn't even need to know what I was crying about. He just put his arms around me and hugged me and he's like, we're going to, we're going to take care of this. So, um, that's how the conversation started. We decided to have a family meeting when my husband got off work with all the kids and everything. And that's when we discussed the game plan going forward. So the game plan was? To go to the doctor because my blood pressure was a huge factor. And I didn't want to, the reason I hadn't quit up until then is because I was afraid I was going to have a heart attack if I did. Because I was drinking to stay alive, but it was killing me by drinking. So... Mm. Um, I made an appointment. I was able to get an emergency appointment the next day, and I hadn't been to a doctor in a while, so this was a new new situation altogether. Um, I went in there. She evaluated, you know, everything as far as what was severe to what could be uh, addressed later. The most important thing was my blood pressure. It was uh, 196 over 110, which is very bad. Um, so we were to get that under control and then she's, she contacted region 10 to get me an assessment to find out if I needed inpatient rehab. Um, because the plan was, is that I would try and taper without having to go to inpatient rehab. And so that's what we did. We had, we had an appointment for about a week later to be evaluated. Um, and then once I was assessed, they decided that I did not need inpatient rehab because at that point I had already tapered for seven days and I was probably at the point of just drinking one bottle of wine again. Uh, Cause at the time that I decided to quit, I was drinking a liter of vodka a day. Wow. And um, they decided that I was doing so well with the taper that I would continue that. And then I would, uh, going forward, I would be doing the outpatient program through Region 10. So that's what I did. So do you remember if you were supervised on this dropping off of drinking or did you control it yourself or was it the help of family, your your husband, your parents, um, your daughter? was not supervised, but I guess I was supervised at the point where of when I would go purchase it just to make sure I didn't have extra because I was famous for sneaking extra. Um, but I was so ready to quit that I was definitely sticking to the plan. Started with the, uh, that night before the doctor, I got my, got a pint instead of a liter and started there. So Went from a pint of vodka to half a pint to a large bottle of wine to a small bottle of wine. And then by the time I was done tapering, I was drinking twisted teas. 
And at that point, when I got to that point, I didn't want them anymore. So I don't even know if I finished them or just poured them down the sink, but um, I didn't need to be supervised. And I think once my husband figured that out, he was, he was okay with, you know, letting me do what I needed to do. Um, so what, it took about 10 days. What other support did you have during this process? And we know that a lot of times when people try to um, recover from an addiction, they fall off the wagon, so to speak. Did that happen to you? Um, I was going to outpatient therapy once a week. I think I had started immediately going back to AA, um, which my husband went with me the first time to pick up my white chip, which is the chip of surrender, you know, saying you wanted to start the road to sobriety. And I continued with AA. My outpatient therapy was only supposed to be 10 weeks, but I stayed in it for a year. Wow. Um, after a while, I stopped going to AA. It came to the point where I was just going to get the chips, you know, celebrations, which were very important to me, but I wasn't getting anything out of the group because I wasn't letting myself get anything out of the group. Like I was afraid of getting a sponsor and and working the steps, um, which now I know you have to be ready for that stuff. And I wasn't ready. I was ready to be sober, but I was not ready to be in recovery because there is a difference. Well, explain to our listeners and to me, what is that difference between recovery and working in the program? Um, well, sobriety is the physical aspect of getting clean and sober, um, not having any substances in your body. And recovery is that along with working the steps. And that's not for everybody, but in my case, working the 12-step program, having a sponsor, doing service work, all of those things are a part of recovery. Um, if you don't maintain a recovery program of some kind, that's when you get complacent. And then eventually uh, a lot of people end up relapsing. I have not relapsed as of yet. There's always a, a yet there because as soon as I think that there isn't one is when I'm gonna end up being in that position. So got the mindset always that, that it could happen to me. And that's what drives me is that fear of relapse. I was just going to ask you, what is the driving factor that's keeping you sober and the fear of relapse? Fear of relapse from day one. Um, it, it sticks with me. I still have dreams about drinking and I'll wake up not bothered by it so much. But there have been times when it's so real that I wake up thinking I had drank and therefore couldn't remember if I have, you know, had seriously relapsed or if it was just a dream and then I would like be devastated. I've always maintained that if I were to relapse, you might as well say goodbye to me because I wouldn't come back from it. Like I'm, I'm physically dependent on alcohol. I'm allergic to it is what they call it because I have a reaction and um, it's not just chemical, it's also mental. And with that, we will take a break. You're listening to the podcast Speaking Candidly with Candace, Voices for Mental Health and Wellness. 
This podcast is made possible through the donations of corporate sponsors and individual donations. To make a donation, visit voicesformentalhealth.org and click on the Donate Us button now. We are back with my guest, Teresa Yoon, talking about addiction and recovery. Teresa, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, around 40 to 60% of individuals in treatment for substance use disorders will relapse. Do you think this statistic is accurate, and how can we lower the rates? Um, I would say it's probably higher. Uh, The amount of times a lot of addicts end up going in and out of rehab, it's a lot of times more than just once. Um, And they have so many different programs now. And the problem is you work the program, whether it be 12 step or, or other in rehab, it's getting out. Like aftercare is a follow-up must, um, not just to go to meetings and work the steps, but also, you know, make sure that you're on the proper meds and have therapy if needed. I am a huge advocate for mental health meds because I know I suffer from major depressive disorder. And when I don't have the right med combination for whatever reason, um, I immediately know when I'm getting depressed. And the first thing that I want to do is just uh, disappear, escape. And whenever I have those feelings, I always ask myself if I want to drink. And the answer is always no. It's never that bad. But the day that it does get that bad, that's exactly what would have been the reason that I didn't stay on top of that. Like, it's, it's up to me. You know, I am not responsible for my addiction, but I am responsible for my recovery, and nobody can get me to do it other than me. I, I like that. I think that's uh, a good way of thinking. Is that part of the AA program, that thought, or is it? It's definitely one of the slogans. Um, we say cliches all the time, and when we're f- first new to the program, we hate it. It's like, why do you all say this stuff all the time because it's it works i want to take a step back and ask you about your recovery group that you started could you talk a little bit about that well as i previously mentioned i enjoy service work and um a lot of women do not feel comfortable in co-ed groups because there are a lot of predators um whether Mm. or not whether or not they're in there for the wrong reasons you know it's so easy in your early recovery to be vulnerable and um you know look for something to replace that drug including love so a lot of women are looking for groups that are just women for the purpose of not being around men. Um, so with that being said, I had left a, another women's group that was very large um, and decided that a more intimate group would be beneficial to a lot of people. Um, so I started this group um, and 
the problem with Facebook groups is sometimes when there are too many cooks in the kitchen, there's just a lot of drama and unnecessary um, bickerments about things. And I wanted to make sure that it was a safe atmosphere and not only from men, but from also um, bullies, um, other women who who thrive on drama. Um, you know, it, there was a no tolerance rule for unpleasantness and I, I ran a strict group, uh, and I sat, that sounds like a control thing. And honestly, maybe it is a little bit, but I believe in being professional, no matter what I do, whether it's my recovery or my life. And, um, when things are run smoothly, everybody tends to be happier. And just being bullied myself, I know what it's like, I know what it looks like, and um, I just don't have any tolerance for that anymore. So if I can provide a safe space for women, um, not only from you know addiction, but also from life, then that's what I wanted to do. Um, and my motto is often, if you want it done right, you do it yourself. <laughs> so I just I took you. it upon myself to do it. Um, and as with most Facebook groups, it, it got big and it got to the point where um, it was bigger than me. And so I handed it over to one of my sponsees who still runs it. Um, but I, I, do, I don't need that in my life anymore. You know, I can do my own service work without being in the limelight because that's what it ended up being was something that um, didn't start out being for validation, but it ended up being for validation because it got so big and I was recognized as somebody in the recovery world that people could go to. And I just didn't want to be in that limelight anymore. So, um, well, I think that's fantastic that you did start it. I also think it makes sense about having an all-women's group. And I'm wondering, when you talk to the other women in your group, do you find there's more similarities into why each person became addicted? Like I said earlier, um, a lot of addicts have some sort of sexual trauma. Uh, whether it be from a partner or from a family member, uh, there's almost always something that is in the beginning of their story. Um, and that, again, has a lot to do with why they don't feel safe around men. And I say men, I mean, there are women out there who date women. I'm one of them. But <laughs> we tend to have a little bit more empathy uh, towards each other. Uh, whereas men, uh, they don't always think with their head. So I have I had a lot of women say that they don't go to in-person meetings because of the predatory aspect. Mm. It's a shame that that has to happen, but I guess it's, it's part of life. Exactly, and thank God for Zoom. That's one good thing that the pandemic um, left behind was um, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous has a huge following on Zoom now, so we don't have to go to in-person meetings if we don't want to. 
Let me ask you this, because you talked about Zoom, and I think that that's correct and a great resource. Are there other resources besides Alcohol Anonymous that you would recommend to the listeners? Um, there are all kinds of 12-step programs out there. It doesn't have to be AA or NA. Um, I think that it's a good place to start but there are other alternatives for, um, you know, because a lot of people are, they're scared away by the whole word, word of God. And like I said earlier, it doesn't have to be a God. It can just be a higher power of whatever. Something that is bigger than you is what it has to be um, in order for the 12 steps to work. So there are other programs out there because there are a lot of people that, that, that just don't, like the 12 steps they they can't follow it for whatever reason um so to answer your question finding resources through other like doctors uh, or therapists you know asking questions going online researching don't assume that if aa or na doesn't work for you that there's nothing out there because it it's a huge community um, you could go on TikTok and follow somebody who is an addict um, that is sharing their story every day on live videos, um, you, Facebook groups. There are all kinds of literature is very important. Um, there's just all kinds of things out there. But the main point is that you have to want it. Um, so that's the first step is admitting you have a problem and and asking for help. Great advice. I want to thank my guest, Teresa Yoon, for being on Speaking Candidly with Candace and sharing her story. And to all the listeners, remember, you are not alone. You can listen to previous episodes of Speaking Candidly with Candace, as well as find mental health resources on our website at voicesformentalhealth.org. Be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.